Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining us as always on Thursdays, one of the one of my best friends in the business, one of my best friends, period, Dwayne Generalissimo Patterson of the Hugh Hewitt Show, uh, fresh off of his after show in the universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com. Troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners, where we do show prep for the Ed Morrissey Show podcast every Wednesday night. Dwayne, <laughs> thank you so much for prepping my show today. Uh, always glad to be back. Uh, good to talk to Eddie. A long time no talk, actually. Yeah, it's been literally hours since we last literally talked. Literally hours since, since we continued this conversation. And, and, and continue it we will, because we're actually going to discuss a couple of things that we did discuss last night. Um, one thing that we only touched on briefly was the Quinnipiac poll. Um, we mentioned it as something that we would take up today. And so let's start with the Quinnipiac poll. We're going to get to a couple of things from Joe Biden and Jerome Powell in a minute, because those are, it had just come out yesterday, right? When it had we, just hit, I think maybe a couple hours before we went on the right. air. Um, and I, I took a look at it this morning. I didn't really get a chance to take a look at it yesterday. I was really just looking at the top line job approval number, which was a tie for the worst that he's had at 3557. But I mean, there's a lot more to this. Dwayne. And I mean, there's some really ugly stuff in here uh, for Democrats and, and not just for Joe Biden, but for Democrats. I mean, Quinnipiac actually does a really interesting job of drilling down on economic questions. Right. Um, and I, I mean, they drill down into what is the what is the most concerning aspect of inflation for voters? Sixty three percent says the price of gas and uh, gas and goods followed by housing and rent at 17% and the stock market 11% because people understand that their retirements are tied up in that. Sure. But um, another point in this is they were asked to choose whether inflation was a crisis, a problem, or neither. Want to want to bet, or you want to take a shot at how many people chose crisis? Uh, 60. Yeah, 59% overall. 59% among independents, 59% among women, 56% among Hispanics, and 52% among black voters. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then and then here's a really interesting question, Dwayne. How much control does a president have over inflation? Because, you know, the White House has been trying to spin this. Well, presidents don't really have control over gas prices. They don't really have control over inflation. That's a Fed thing. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, what if... If it's north of seventy, boy is boy is is are, are the Democrats screwed? It's it's not, but it's almost. Now, if you now they do this thing where where it's um, uh, a lot of control, some control, only a little control, so, no control, so, right? So, so you add those two together. Yeah, the yeah the, the top two together and the bottom two together, and you get your split, right? Want to guess how many adults? This is among all adults, by the way. I should say uh, among all adults. How many people think that the tell president has significant control over inflation? Tell, tell, tell me it's 65. 69. <laughs> 69%. Among women, it's 72%. Among Hispanics, it's 71%. Um, Man, I wouldn't I wouldn't give a warm squirt of, of um, waste in a bucket for, for Democrats' chances this fall. They are going to get hammered. So let's take a look at gas prices. <laughs> this is even better. So again, a four tier response, and this right? Is, and this is we 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 need to remind people this is not 
um, Trafalgar. This is not. Uh, Although Trafalgar is pretty, pretty accurate. It's not fair, Rasmussen, fair. which is also it's, fairly accurate. Correct. It's not Zogby. This is no, it's this, not Zogby. <laughs> this, this, this is Quinnipiac doing this. Which is, which is usually, according to 538, a slightly dim leaning poll. I'm not, yes. not bad, but slightly dim leaning no, poll. No, but, but right. This is, this is, this is not exactly Republican friendly turf. No, it is not. Um, gas prices and their impact. Um, now again, a four tier, a four tier response on this, a very serious problem, a somewhat serious problem, not much of a problem, not a problem at all. Um, so again, we're going to, we're going to take the top two and the bottom two, combine them up for a split. Um, how, what do you think the percentages of people who say that gasoline prices has either a somewhat or very serious problem? If it's not North of 80, it's a busted well, hole. Well, it's 68%. 6832. Oh, oh, it should it should be more than that. It should be more than that. Um the um <laughs> what's holding it down um uh, are the Democrats who say 4752. <laughs> well, well okay, so so what I'm gathering there is basically they called around Martha's Vineyard to get to get uh, to get people um I, responding I'm, to this poll. I'm guessing that you may be right or they're calling in college towns a, a, an awful lot. Yes. But but um how many, and this is a lower number, I'll, I'll give you a hint, this is a lower number. How many How many respondents said that they've had to actually reduce spending in other areas to deal with gas price uh, increases? 50. 55% overall, 57% among Hispanics, 57% among Black voters, 58% among independents. Uh, again, you know, if if you're James Carville looking at these look, looking at these um, uh, underpinnings or looking at these stats, if you're Carl Rove on on the Republican side looking at these stats, if you're Carl Rove, you're salivating, can't wait for this next election to happen. If you're Carville, you're going, man, oh man, oh man, you the squad's got to put a cork in it. Bernie Sanders has to put a cork in it. We're gonna get killed. We're not talking the issues that need to be talked about. Now I'm going to ask you on job approval, all overall job approval, and I'll tell you among adults, it was 3262, right? Which was, I think, tied for the lowest that he's had. 3260. Oh, sorry. That was on the economy. I should say that's on the economy. Yeah. I was going to say civics was 32. Yeah. No, it's, but on the economy, Joe Biden's getting a 3262. Now, which, which age demographic do you think uh, scored Biden the worst on economic approval? Well, if you're going to set me up with that kind of a softball. I mean, this is T-ball. This isn't even softball. If, this is T-ball. If, if, if you're going to put the wiffle ball up on the tee for me, I'm going to say, well, naturally, because Joe Biden uh, did away with the um, you know requirement of having to pay for student loans and, and all that student loan forgiveness, why... I'm sure that the youth vote is just flocking back to Joe Biden now. <laughs> well, thank you for the T-ball response, because you clearly are a broadcasting professional, know exactly where it is I'm leading here. The worst age demographic for Joe Biden on not just economic job approval, but also on overall job approval is 18 to 34 year olds. Do you know where the let's go Brandon thing? I mean, we know where it got started. It got started on that racetrack when a when a, a, a guy named Brandon won a truck race and people in the crowd were doing, you know, you know, F Joe Biden and the reporter was saying, do you hear them in the crowd? They're chanting your name. They're saying, let's go Brandon. Right. So. That's where that whole thing was birthed. Right. But 
all over college campuses at football games and basketball games and all sorts of sporting events. It was the kids that were doing the let's go yeah. or the, the F. Joe Biden stuff. He has lost kids from way back. Oh, yeah. Well, and he's he's losing them now big time. Twenty five, sixty three, twenty five, sixty three. That's the uh, that's on the economy. Twenty five, fifty five overall. With those kind of numbers, then where you're at is instead of instead of Democrats trying to encourage the youth to vote because we know how they vote. At this point, you're you're going to have the perverse reverse where Democrats are like, you know, that whole rock the vote thing, you know, that 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 whole, uh, you know, get out the get out the youth vote thing. Maybe not so much. We're going to de-emphasize that. It's actually better for the Democratic Party now if the kids don't vote. Oh, I well, I actually I think that's the problem for them. It's not just the voting. Don't forget. Where do they get activists? Where do they get poll watchers? Oh, where do they knockers. where do they Walking get door the knockers? Canvas, you bet. No, I understand all that. Yeah. But what, I, but what I'm saying is it was always the Democrats that tried to, you know, do all these youth outreaches to get the kids motivated to get out and vote because they knew where their vote was going to be. Well, now they are looking at the numbers and the vote's going to be the wrong way. So they're like, ah, don't get out the vote. No, no. Go ahead and stay home. Uh, play Nintendo. Play play video games. Uh, uh, <laughs> we, we, we're we're going to be fine without you. We don't want you to vote after all. It, I mean, it's exactly the opposite now. Right. Right. And uh, again, so the youth vote is one thing. I want to take a look at two other demos before we move on to a couple other topics, right? Sure. Because this Q poll is just really fascinating. And and I think the economics questions are the most fascinating part of this because you can get the you can get job approval, you can even get econ, you know approval on economy from pretty much any pollster that's in the field. But Winnipeg actually is asking some interesting questions specific about the economy, and so I I really wanted to make sure that we drilled down on that this morning when I was uh, when I was going through this. But um, two other demographics, Hispanics. I mean, overall job approval from Hispanics in Quinnipiac. You want to take a guess at what the at what the positive number here is for Joe Biden? Uh, twenty eight. Yeah, yeah, yay! Nicely done. Twenty nine percent. Twenty nine fifty five is the overall job approval from Hispanic voters for Joe Biden. Do you know what the voter registration of of Hispanics are by party in Florida today? Did Hispanics tip over into the Republican yes. column? Yes. Yeah. This is the reason why. This is the reason. Well, I would say, first off, Biden's the reason why. Second off, the economy's the reason why. But I think that one of the third reasons is the fact that the woke Olympics um, over, you know, in the Democratic tent have basically sidelined Hispanics. It's all aimed you, at black voters. In the next decade, I'm telling you, you're going to get that wall built finally. and the And the people pushing to get that wall built are going to be the Democrats. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, I, or, or the Hispanic Republicans, because again, in the Rio Grande Valley, they're they're really pissed off about this border crisis. Right. But but the Democrats are going to go right along with it. Yeah, they're, they're going to, they're going to the want to plan, get it built. <laughs> their, 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 voter, their voter registration drive is going to have backfired. They're like, you know what we need? We need a wall. They're going to have recruited a whole lot of Republican voters. Yeah, I mean, take right. a look at, at the Hispanic, um, Hispanic voters' Job approval of Joe Biden on the economy is 3061. Now, 
Between that and the youth vote, Democrats, I think, are really, truly screwed in this cycle. They may be really, truly screwed for several cycles with this going on. I think I Michael Tracy last night, who's a uh, well, a liberal um, commentator. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how to how best to describe him. It might just more be like a uh, neo isolationist kind of guy. Yeah, he may just be a contrarian. He may just be a contrarian too. Yeah, and um, was saying that he sees the the youth demo on this as a realignment. I don't know that I agree that that's a realignment, but the Hispanics clearly are a realignment. They're realigning into the Republican Party. I don't know if young voters are realigning into the Republican Party or if they're just going to drop out of politics. And I suspect it's really going to be the latter. Yeah, but we'll see. You know- I, I don't want to count my chickens before they hatch, but if these trends continue, and not just for this cycle, but you know the twenty four. Well, we got another two too. years of Joe Biden, <laughs> right? So, so if the Democrats truly and righteously get thumped the next two election cycles, it it, it doesn't just affect the Congress, and it doesn't just affect um, you know the, the the presidency. That affects state houses. It affects all the way yep. down. The, I mean, there's tails that go all the way down. You're going to turn the Democratic Party, if they're not careful, they're going to turn into a regional party. They're going to be a California, New York, Boston, uh, and Chicago party. And that's really about it. I well, mean, they got close to that after 2010, too. Don't yeah, forget. They're, 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 going, they're working themselves into being a regional party. Yeah. I mean, only, only Barack Obama's personal likability. Um, was able to rescue them from that, and and the and the groundwork he did in in two thousand eight. It's the only thing that rescued them from becoming a regional party. Joe Biden's done none of that. Right. He's got and none no, of that. And, and and I'm not saying that you know there's not going to be somebody on the horizon that that will emerge. But you you look at their you look at their bench right now. You look at their at, at the at the minor leagues for the Democrats. There's not. It's not a Politico, Obama out there. Politico has a piece on that saying how it's going to come out of the rank. You know, they're, they're already starting to build a bench out of the ranks of governors. And they include Stacey Abrams in there, who's not a governor, well, <laughs> who's, who's 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 claimed to be a governor, but right, isn't but, a governor. But even even if she was and even if yeah. you want to point to Stacey Abrams, you know, Barack Obama was pretty smooth, right? Yeah. Stacey Abrams is not smooth. She's no. awfully damn abrasive. She's very abrasive. Um, she is. She's been caught out, caught out as a hypocrite on too many occasions. She is not going to be. Well, this brings us to black voters, right? Because the idea of running Stacey Abrams would be to appeal to the black voters who really are the core uh, constituency now of the Democratic Party. It's really what they're what they're. Um, their, uh, you know, wokery is centered on. It's one of the reasons why the Hispanics are leaving because Hispanics have realized that when you have a party based whose principles are based on immutable characteristics, everything's a competition. There's no, there's no area for cooperation. Right. Um, now Biden's still positive among black voters on both the economy and the, uh, and overall job approval. But can you guess what his economic, um, approval number was among black voters? 6430 positive 5436 um on <laughs> on on overall approval well and well i mean no that's that's economic approval do you know what you're, you're closer on overall approval because i was 5931 but, but that's but that's today if inflation well, keeps riding or if we even invert into a recession yeah and this go you know this crap goes on for the months and and, and years that we think it's going to go on it ain't going to hold at that number. Well, well, Dwayne, what do you think a 36% disapproval rating on the economy means? Or even a 
uh, disapproval uh, rate on the economy among black voters means for the Democratic Party this year and in 2024. This is a this is a demographic that Democrats carry by a 90-10 margin in almost yes. every election. Yes. Now, I, mean, I don't know that they're going to switch to be Republicans, but a lot of these a lot of these voters are going to stay home. They're either going to stay home, they're going to register a protest vote and throw it away. Um, it and and they're certainly not going to they're certainly not going to be as as motive. I mean, the 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 African American vote when Barack Obama was at the top of the ticket, they came out. I mean, they 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 came in droves. They came. And got their relatives to vote that may not have uh, voted in in quite a long time. I mean, there was there was a draw, a motivating factor. They were energized and motivated to vote. They were willing to crawl through the the proverbial broken glass to to cast a vote for the first African American president. Yep, they're not going to do that for Joe Biden. They're nope. not going to do that for Democrats. They. They may still they be, they may still say you know I'm never going to be a Republican because they're a bunch of racists. I understand all that, but the motivating factor to get out, they're like, why? What difference is it going to make? Things suck right now. Right. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ride it out and try and keep my head down. Right. Right. Exactly. All right. Let's move on to a couple other topics. We got to make sure that we get you out on time today, and because um, you've got big things going on at the Hugh Hewitt Show today, and. Um, uh, first off, the White House has been trying to sell the idea that Joe Biden doesn't really have any control over inflation or gas prices. Uh, it's big oil control. At the same time, trying to take credit for all the control that he's done so far. Right. That you that you poor schlubs don't fully appreciate. Right. Yeah. You, you, you clearly don't understand my genius for uh, uh, sort of things. Let's start with let's start with inflation being Putin's price hike. Uh, there was a great clip yesterday. Um, and I'm going to write about this today. Well, the post will already, already be up when this podcast drops um, with Jerome Powell answering a question from Senator Bill Haggerty in the Senate Banking Committee about whose inflation this actually is. Um, you have that clip? I do indeed. Stand by. Let me go to here and here. And this is that cut right here. that play a role in the historic inflation that we're experiencing, uh, supply chain disruptions, regulations that constrain supply. We've got rising inflation expectations and excessive physical spending. But the problem hasn't sprung out of nowhere. And in January of 2021, inflation was at 1.4 percent. By December of 2021, it had risen to 7 percent, a five-fold increase. Now, since the war in Ukraine began in late February, the rate of inflation has risen incrementally another 1.6% to a current level of 8.6%. So again, uh, from 7% to 8.6%. Given how inflation has escalated over the past 18 months, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? No, inflation was high before, certainly before the uh, war in Ukraine broke out. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. The Biden administration seems to be intent on deflecting blame and as recently as just this past Sunday, spread the misinformation that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is the, quote, biggest single driver of inflation. I'm glad you agree with me that that is not the truth. Not just since Sunday, <laughs> but after he spoke at that testimony under under oath saying, right. well, of course, inflation was going on before Putin invaded. <laughs> the White House still doubled down and tripled down knowing the lie was there. Right. And, and in fact... 
above the line inflation, 2% is the line, right? That's the Federal Reserve target, right? Above the line inflation started in April 2021. It was the month after Biden's American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion unnecessary COVID relief slash stimulus package passed. It started in April 2021, and it actually peaked well before Putin's forces even stepped off, especially in so-called core inflation. So, I mean, it's it's a nonsense claim. It's been a nonsense. You don't even you don't need to be an economist. All you need to be able to do is look at a calendar and read a chart. Right. You, but 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 it goes back to the larger point that, that you already made, which is he can't have it both ways. He can't right. say it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And out of the same side of his mouth, say, and you're not giving me credit for all the good stuff I've done because things are really going really well. Right. I mean, it, it, it's it. You can't have them both. No, you can't have them both. It's, and then it's, it's like it's like that economic advisor, uh, Jared Bernstein, telling uh, Neil Cavuto yesterday. Um, we let me let me say it point blank. We want big oil to drill more. <laughs> we want them to refine more. But I'm not going to I'm not going to let the the, 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 the the climate change stuff off the hook here. Not only do we want them to drill more, not only do we want them to refine more. But at the same time, we want them to work with us to undercut the the, the very nature of the investment they're going to have to make to produce more. Right. We want to end that in three years so that they don't even get to realize the investment they're making. Right. It's crazy. It's, it's insane. It's crazy. It's insane. Which brings us to Joe Biden. This is what we'll, we'll wrap up with because we only got a couple minutes left. Brings us to Joe Biden's exhortation to gas station owners yesterday. Now, uh-huh. <laughs> you have to be really desperate. To try to demonize gas station owners for the inflation desperate. that you could. You say desperate. I would say rotten. It was a rotten, rotten thing. It's to a say. rotten thing to say. It's absolutely a rotten thing to say. This is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Go ahead and r- rip that one away there, Dwayne. Here we go. To the companies running gas stations and setting those prices at the pump. This is a time of war. Global peril. Ukraine. These are not normal times. Bring down the price you are charging at the pump to reflect the cost you are paying for the product. Do it now. Do it today. Your customers, the American people, they need relief now. Number one, there is no war. We are not at at war. And the guy that said we are not at war and went out of his way to make sure that we were not at war was Joe Biden. Number two. By by signaling to people, look, I know things are tough right now. I know things are expensive, but that corner gas station, that mini mart, that AM PM, that that um, that Seven Eleven uh, uh, gas station, what, pick pick your little mini mart on the corner. That place, they could drop prices fifty cents a gallon right now if they wanted to, because they're being greedy bastards. So. Yeah. If you really want to go get them, you go give them a piece of your mind that he did to gas stations. And I mean, these these gas station owners, they make their money on the, on the convenience the side. Yeah. And the convenience store. The gas is almost a lost leader for them. They make they I mean, they make one, two percent off of that. Their their whole business model is, you know, you're going in and paying for the ho-hos and the slurpees. Right. Right. That's where they're making their money. But Joe Biden is now sicking the mob on him. He did to the gas stations what Chuck Schumer did to the court. Right. Yep. 
don't go after me. Go after those bastards over there. It's those bastards over there. It's not my fault. It's those bastards over there. I, I call it in my post dipstick demagoguery. You got to right. be a you got to be a member of the universe. Um, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, the troll-free web surfing experience to hear what my comment was last night, oh, which yes. was somewhat a little bit more pungent than dipstick demagoguery. Um, we've only got a minute left. Dwayne, what's coming up on the Hugh Hewitt Show? Uh, tomorrow, we're going to do movies with Sonny Bunch. Uh, Tarzana Joe will have a poem. Uh, Larry Arn will continue with his Aristotle series. And uh, we're actually going to be taping in just a couple of seconds a segment with Shelby Steele of the California Republican Party fame and uh, yeah. talk about movement in politics in California and kind of where that sits. We'll talk to him in just a couple of minutes. That will play tomorrow morning as well. Excellent. Dwayne Generalissimo Patterson, thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you again next week, sir. Perfect. Thanks, Ed. Stand by for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. And you're already looking at one of my favorite people, Anne McElhaney, who, uh, along with her husband, Phelan McAleer, are just excellent filmmakers, excellent people, just the nicest folks. And they're starting a new conservative true crime podcast and uh, just is going to launch the day that this airs. By the time this is actually up at hotair.com, it will have already launched. But uh, the, the true crime podcast, it's going to be dealing with uh, Kermit Gosnell and uh, which of course they're experts on the story that they literally wrote the book on and so good to have you on with us it's so great to join you Ed it's been too long it's been too long thank you so much for having me on far too long and uh, and and my wife and I have enjoyed your your wonderful hospitality in the past and it's just always a delight to to talk to you and to talk to Phelan and uh, and, and to be up to date on your on your incredible adventures in this podcast is another of your incredible adventures. Tell us a little bit about what led you to do a true crime podcast. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, the, so the true crime, I mean, you know this, probably some of your listeners would know this as well. So in the podcast universe, um, you know, there's a lot of conservatives like ourselves who talk and it's we have these shows that are like radio shows, basically like radio shows, but radio shows on demand. So you get to listen to Ed Morrissey when you want. You get to listen to us when you want. Um, and, but there is another universe of podcasts that are out there and very dominated by the left. And the largest, possibly the largest chunk genre wise in that universe is the true crime area so serial was a podcast a true crime podcast created by npr 450 million people have downloaded serial and it's about one uh, it's about a, a young man who is in prison uh, a Muslim boy who's in prison for murdering his girlfriend. And, you know, it, they re, uh, reinvestigate the case um, right. over over many, many episodes. As I said, 450 million people have listened to that. They have other podcasts like Dirty John. Some people would know that incredible story from Newport Beach. They have ones like Dr. Death about a doctor from, from actually from uh, working in Texas. Really scary stuff. We realized you know, that this is a massive, massive audience of very often young people, very, very often women, by the way, who are very attracted to true crime. And we thought, you know what? We have all these tapes. When we started investigating the Gosnell case, we went to Philadelphia. We spoke to the DA, the DA's office, the people people at the DA's office who had been working on the, on the situation. We, we talked to the crime scene investigators. We talked to victims. 
We talked to all kinds of people and we talked to Kermit Gosnell, by the way. Right. And we thought we have all these tapes of these incredible interviews and we realized this is actually a true crime podcast and we need to make this into a true crime podcast. And given the fact, obviously right now, as you're, as you say, your show is going out, you know, very likely that when your show is going today, people will have found out the result of the Supreme Court decision from the, you know, from the Dobbs case. And so a lot of people will be thinking about the abortion issue and people who are pro-abortion will be thinking about the abortion issue. And maybe they're going to search online and start, you know, trying to read some stuff and learn some things. And they may come across our podcast and, you know, get an education that, that people need, by the way, because I think, and it's interesting for me, having worked on this story for many years now, that even the pro-abortion side, even our side on this issue, when I go and speak at events, I am so often shocked by people saying to me, I didn't know such and such. I didn't know such and such. And I'm thinking, these are like, you know, and these are really good people who have thought about this issue for years. And, you know, so even the choir need um, practice, if you know what I mean, and re- right. need to be reminded of just how bad things are, that this country can only be compared to places like North Korea, that we're in this awful club of countries that abort legally up to nine months and and for any reason up to nine months. Um, and, and, that, and the people do. And we know that people do because of the people who went to Gosnell's clinic. Um, and I, I, you know... I make this one point I make about Gosnell. There's so many things to say about Gosnell, but when they raided the clinic, you know, so he was discovered, he was selling opioids. So he was only discovered through a routine drug investigation. And even that part of the story is fascinating. Um, But when they eventually raided his clinic, they found the bodies of 47 babies there um, who had been, you know, aborted or murdered. and I'm talking from the legal term uh, of of aborted or, or legally aborted or murdered illegally. Right. Um, but among those bodies, I've seen the photographs of all of them. Um, pretty much all of them were legally were legally aborted, and those pictures are very arresting. And it's like so much about this story that stops you in your tracks, where you think, "Oh my God, this is what's legal." This is what's legal in America. And I think that, 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 you know, having a true crime podcast that goes through those, the minutiae of the case that tells the story, and it's a very human story. And the people involved, the investigators, the cops, they're just great people, by the way. And when you hear their voices in the podcast, you know, you really get a sense of the humanity of these people. And by the way, you get to realize how lucky we are with so the vast, vast, vast majority of law enforcement who are just, you know, just complete stars and such believers in justice, um, like the people involved in this case who brought this man to justice and put him in prison. Um, it's it's uplifting, bizarrely. Well, it, it is once you once you are able to ascend from the details, right? And you know, I I I, I read your book. I I've seen your movie on Gosnell. Fantastic stuff, by the way. And people should watch this. I also was I was flipping through. I think it was Amazon Prime or Netflix. It was one of the two. And there was a documentary on Gosnell, which actually kind of got me by brilliant. surprise. It's a brilliant documentary. It I is a brilliant. It, it yes. is a brilliant documentary, and I, you know, it, to, to your point about being reminded of these things. And this is maybe like four or five months ago. I'm watching this mm-hmm. thing, and I almost didn't watch it because I was thinking, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, know, I, I knew, wrote about know it all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I knew it all. I'd written extensively about it. I talked to you yes. guys a lot about this, and of course, you know, talked about your movie and 
we sat through it, both, both my wife and I sat through it. And it wasn't that I was surprised by uh, any of the new details. I mean, there were, there was, a, there were some new details in that, that I hadn't either I'd forgotten or because a lot of it was just from the, the grand jury testimony, which I'd read entirely, mm-hmm. but it really did come back to mind. And the anger and disgust really was, I was surprised at how much that moved me. I, I, I you know, not that I mean, I'm I'm glad it did, but you're right. You have to kind of go back into this, and I think yeah. especially now. You you meant you just mentioned this. I want to talk a little bit more about this. The Supreme Court is going to apparently going to overturn Roe. It's going to return the issue back to legislatures. So they're not going to outlaw abortion. Mm-hmm. They're simply going to say Roe was wrongly decided. Yes, we're going to hand it back to legislatures because that's where this belongs, not in the courts. Yeah. Um, and at that point, it becomes. A properly political issue, right? Because you can go to your legislatures, people can decide, you know, what what the best policy is. And that's when I think you really need to understand how Kermit Gosnell got to be Kermit Gosnell in the first place. How many opportunities there were to stop this guy yes. Um, yes. before they did. And, and yeah. as you said, Ironically, the only reason I ended up stopping him is because they thought he was dealing. Well, he was. He was dealing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> he was dealing no, prescription no, medication. Mean, but yeah, I no, mean, this is this is an amazing. This is an incredibly important point, and it's kind of it's, and it's really chilling. And actually, one of the episodes in the podcast almost exclusively deals with this this dereliction of duty. How it was that he got away with this for so long, and you know, you know, you you know, people listening to the podcast, people listening to the story might think, well, you know, you know, people, you know, something, whatever, they might think something. Uh, here's the truth. For 17 years, no one inspected the clinic. 17 years. And it wasn't like things were going swimmingly. During that 17 years, there were complaints that would have gone to the ceiling about the conditions in the clinic, about the fact that there were cats in the clinic, that it was filthy, that it was dirty. But beyond that, beyond even that, and the fact that he had, by the way, that nobody, the people that were working for him were not qualified. These were not nurses. These were not people with any medical expertise. These were people who barely had finished sixth grade education, many of them, um, were barely literate, most of them, who were doing, who were giving anesthesia. One of the anesthesiologists, by the way, the best anesthesiologist was a teenager um, a young teenager who actually took her job very, very seriously, Tina uh, Ashley Baldwin. But worse than all of that is the fact that two people died, Samika Shaw, a young African-American mother, and Karnamaya Monger, a Bhutanese refugee who yep. had been in, a, in a, a refugee camp in Nepal for 20 years, came to America and was dead four months later. These two women, by the way, who in a state that is proudly progressive, extremely proudly progressive Pennsylvania, allowed the death of a young African-American woman and the death of a refugee, by the way, apparently two populations that are particularly, you know, particularly cared for by progressives. Both of those deaths went un- um, uninspected, if you like, unexamined by the Department of Health and the Department of State in Pennsylvania. Both of those deaths were... So neither of those deaths inspired the people paid for by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to get out of their cushy chairs in Harrisburg and drive to Philadelphia and walk across the threshold of this place. Because if they had... If they had, they could have stopped the mayhem immediately. They could have stopped. The, they would have walked in. Anyone who would know anything. The, the worst thing, you know, there's so many awful things about this case. But if you think of the people in Harrisburg, the people who were working in the Department of Health, the idea, these are the people who close down restaurants, by the way, when they find, you know, they find dust and they're like, there's some dust here. I just found some dust here. You know, we're going to close this place down. 
they their, their dereliction of duty is beyond belief. And, yep. and, and there is no suggestion, there is absolutely no suggestion in anything I have researched that anything has changed in progressive Pennsylvania. So if it can happen in Pennsylvania, this can happen wherever you're listening to us. Um, and this is another, you know, this is another service that this po podcast, I hope, will provide. Well, I hope so too. I mean, and the other uh, the other aspect of this, of course, and you guys covered this quite a bit, and, and certainly you wrote about it in the book, and it's in the movie too, is that is, is how much Gosnell got away with because of the clientele that he was servicing. If yes. this had happened in a Tony suburb of Pennsylvania, and I don't know the suburbs of Pennsylvania, I would I would name a suburb, but it's yes, I, yes. I wouldn't I would I wouldn't know one end of Pennsylvania from the other. If only or King one of end of Prussia, I think King of Prussia. Prussia. There you go, King of Prussia. If it happened, King of Prussia, right there you go. Thank you. Um, I you know my 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 Philadelphia geographical knowledge is very limited, but if it happened in King of Prussia, there would have been people all over this thing. Yes. Um, yeah. The fact oh, absolutely, and it's it's you know the you know it's it's um who's talked about the oh my god I can't even think of the name but it's this rush to the yeah it's like you know yes this was a very these the, she, he was servicing a very poor population of mostly African American minorities, um and so it was okay you know kind of Harrisburg obviously had the attitude that that'll be okay for those kind of people um you know and you talk about the race the racism at this there's an incredible amount of racism in this as you say yeah if this has been some kind of Tony little suburb somewhere like King of Prussia, you know, everyone would have been up in arms, but yeah, it was okay for them, for those kind of people. And, you know, and I, I have to say, and I think this is another reason why your, your podcast is going to be so valuable. By the way, before we even go any further, where can people find the podcast? So make sure we make sure we heavily mention that during this um, interview. Where can people find the podcast? Well, I'm also going to ask you at one point, and maybe we'll do this at the end, if you'll play the promo, which is a visual promo. Yeah, I can actually. Long. Yeah. Um, we'll I, can actually I can actually do that, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah no, please do. And then also I'll cue it up. listening. And people who are listening, they can go to SerialPod.com. Seri sorry, SerialKillerPod.com. If they go to SerialKillerPod.com, what we need you to do is subscribe. It's free. Just hit the subscribe button um, and you'll get all of the episodes. You'll, you'll get to hear all of the episodes. And the other thing I would ask your listeners to do, big favor for me, please, is when you've listened... Uh, leave a review please leave a review give us a five-star rating we think we deserve it uh, but you can just you decide how much we deserve and also share share the link with your friends and share the link with young people um because you'll find you might you know older people mightn't realize but young people are listening to podcasts like this but they are very often extremely liberal and telling a very different kind of story i mean this is again it's just telling it's a true crime story it tells the criminal, you know, the criminal investigation, the trial of this serial killer. And he, it's not us, by the way, saying that. Terry Morn of ABC News, a veteran news journalist, described Kermit Gosnell as probably America's most prolific serial killer. Because the grand jury, again, not made up of pro-life activists, the grand jury concluded that he had killed in his 40-year career hundreds, if not thousands of babies. And this just to remind Cyril, this is my name, uh, my name. what he did. His modus operandi was to deliver babies alive, to fill women up with cytotech, which made them babies, babies basically dropped out of the women. Um, they would drop out, they would be alive. And he had trained his staff, and obviously he did it himself, to, to lift up those babies who were alive, who cried, 
um, who squirmed, who moved and to cut their necks with scissors. And this is what his modus operandi was for 40 years. By the way, I, I, I'm not sure if you were hearing it, but I am queuing up that video and I was trying to get it to stop playing. Oh, good. <laughs> no, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it. Well, I'm yeah. hoping I'm hoping I can play that. Why don't we do that now? Why don't we play the sure. we'll, we'll, we'll play the promo now? Hopefully this is going to work, but at least you'll see the visuals. This is the um, this is the um, the promo for Serial Killer, a true crime podcast. Killer. My name is Anne McElhenney and I'm an investigative journalist. I've never covered a story like the case of Philadelphia's Dr. Kermit Baron Gosnell. He's America's most prolific serial killer, and you've probably never heard of him. A Philadelphia abortion doctor has been charged with eight counts of murder. I thought homicide was ridiculous, you know, because I know I didn't commit any homicide. didn't feel that I had done anything wrong at all. This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Huntingdon. This call is subject to reporting and monitoring. Well, that wasn't my fault that they didn't inspect me. I felt that I was among the most qualified and highest skilled providers. I often refer to him as like a Hannibal Lecter type person. What we experienced was far beyond anything I could ever have imagined. And to realize what it was he was doing and how horrific it was. It was a mill. It was a murder mill. I didn't even know why I got arrested. You know, the night they came for me, no one told me. I just took to Twitter. I would look at a reporter and I would ask them personally, why have you not covered the Kermit Gosnell story? When you then came to assist him and were working with him, I mean, you I think you did take a photograph at one stage, didn't you, Adrian? Yes, I did. I took a photograph. Um... Was that the baby boy? Yes. It's the most upsetting case I ever worked on. I, don't, I never had a case that, that bothered me as much as this. It was horrible. Serial Killer, a true crime podcast uh, by Ann McElhaney, who literally wrote the book, on the Kermit Gosnell story and and uh, powerful, it's a powerful promo. Obviously, oh, good. it's uh, Thank you. yeah. I think that's a very compelling uh, promo. But now that we now that we've seen the promo, you need to tell people again where to see it because we're gonna we're gonna mention this a couple of times. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, people can go to serialkillerpod.com, serialkillerpod.com, and they'll find everything there, and they'll find all the episodes, which are, um, which we're, we're sorry, we're going to be drip feeding them. So when you when people yep. are getting this, they're going to hear the first episode. Um, and as I said, listen to that first episode, share it, subscribe, leave a review, leave a note, let us know what you think. Um, we're you know getting into this area. We're one of the things that we want to do is, you know, we need to obviously, as I said before, the choir need, need practice. Our own people need to be reminded Indeed. of this story. But also we need to start talking to other people. I mean, one of the things that was amazing to me, and I was just over the last few days doing it, was looking at the kind of messages that we have gotten over the years. Many, many, many messages, many letters, um, many people who wrote reviews and put stuff up on Twitter and Facebook about the effect that the movie had on them or the book had on them. And it's extraordinary, particularly people who were pro-abortion, um, who wrote and said, no more. That was it. That me. That was me. Done. Um, I think about a guy called Patrick Coralesh, by the way, a media, um, a media uh, expert who has his own podcast, um, Red Pill America. And he he actually wrote and said, "In 90, I watched a movie that in 90 minutes changed my mind forever about abortion." You know, this is the kind of incredible testimony. There was a, a social media influencer um, from Florida, quite another big deal, and she basically the very same thing said. She watched the movie, and that's it. She's done. She's changed. 
changed. She's it suddenly opened her eyes. And it's that thing with, you know, at the center of the story. And we have that obviously in the podcast is the story of the, the life and the death of baby boy A, who lived for a day, shares a birthday with my own father, July the 12th, and whose whose death had such an impact on people who come to know the story of how he died and what what happened and the the influence he had on the trial. Um you know, even in this clinic where things were really appalling and awful all the time, th- his death was particularly poignant because he struggled so much and was alive for quite, quite, a, quite a bit of time to the extent that a number of people in the clinic took a photograph of him. And that photograph became very central during the court case. Um, and when Adrian Moten, who is one of the workers at the clinic, uh, when the cops caught up with her, um, she had kept the phone. Years had passed, many years had passed since his death, but she had kept the phone and she gave the phone to them and they had to send it to Quantico, to the FBI headquarters in Quantico to retrieve the photograph, which is available, by the way, online. People can, people can find that photograph, baby boy, eh? Um, and uh, it's very, it's, you know, it's really, really powerful, but people and people can be changed. So this is what we're, uh, you know, I think. You know, I think a lot of people have an opinion about abortion and maybe not everyone who has an opinion about abortion actually knows what they're talking about. Right. Um, and I was quite surprised at my own ignorance. I was very surprised at what I didn't know, um, that you can have an abortion up to nine months in America, you know, and you often hear pro-abortion activists say that second and third trimester abortions are actually really unusual. Very few, very, very rare, very, un- and you know, the mother's life is in danger. This is not true at all. Like that is that is it. This isn't even true, according to the Gottmacher Institute and and pro-abortion, you know, um, institutions. No, that's not true at all. In fact, the numbers of babies who are who are aborted in the second and third trimester are in the tens of thousands. And that number that I'm saying is based on the numbers that, as I said, the Gottmacher Institute are publishing. And one of the things that people may not know that I, I've only recently kind of in the last year discovered, when you hear about the numbers of babies that have been aborted in America, you have to know that that is an estimate, that that is not, that's not an actual number. Uh, faci- abortion facilities are not required. They are not legally required to to fess up to the number of abortions they've done. Um, some areas um, are voluntarily handing over information, but they're not required to. And, and in the places where they are required to, one of those places is Pennsylvania. Right. In Pennsylvania, they're required to. And here's what we know, that we know really well, that while they're required to, Kermit Gosnell didn't, and he never got into trouble for it. So it's nonsense. The, number, the numbers are a pure fiction. And they are obviously very, very much on the low side. So whatever the number is that's been put out by the pro-abortion people, you have to know that that is the absolute minimum number of abortions that are happening. The, the real number, it could be multiples of that. Yeah, and, and, and I think that when, now that we're going to be getting into the, the post-Roe world. Yes, We've been fighting in the courts. We, you know, pro-life organizations in, in in the movement itself has been fighting multi-tiered, right? Multi-front wars. They've been fighting yes. the cultural war. They've been fighting the political war. They've been fighting the the legal war. Well, the legal war is about to be over here. In mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of the Supreme Court, in terms of Roe, it appears at least at this moment that the le- that that legal war will be over. Culturally and politically, then 
that those struggles become much more important. And I mean, they need to be in this, your video, your, your first off, your movie, your book about Gosnell needs to be provided to every single state legislative committee that's going to be taking up these questions now. Yes. And, and your podcast needs to be, um, uh, as well. And, they're not going to get there on their own. So you need no. people to be, to be watching these and, and to, and to be listening totally. to the podcast. I would, I would actually argue as well that, um, you know, and I appreciate the point that you've made. I mean, in some ways, obviously we're now in a situation where the legal, you know, this legal matter has been dealt with, um, you know, finally, finally, and people have waited a very long time for that. A huge amount of work, massive work has been done by pro-life activists, um, by wonderful organizations like the Susan B. Anthony list, who have done amazing work to get us to here. Um, and now I actually think the real work begins now because in the end, this abortion issue is not, it's not about the law. It's not, it's not about the law. The law is one thing. But people thinking it's okay to abort a baby is something that's in their heart and in their mind. Yep. And the laws are, are separate almost from that. People, I think what I, what I would like to try and do is to make abortion unthinkable. Because once, once people understand what it is, that, that's actually what happens. It becomes unthinkable. It's, it's not like an argument anymore. It's like, I don't know why we're even talking about, you know what I mean? This is too much of an abomination. How could this possibly be something? You know, this is just extraordinary. So I think, and I think on the culture side, I think that's where we failed a little bit. I mean, I know there are some, like, obviously we made the Gosnell movie. There's movies like Unplanned and there were other movies, but it's, but it's quite limited because when you, when you add those movies up um, and the work that we've done up and put it as, uh, against what the pro-abortion people have, have achieved through movies and TV shows for decades, we're, we're in, we're like in a starting position here. Um, I mean, I don't know one thing that I often tell audiences, and I know, again, pro-life people would be, might be surprised, and it's interesting to know this. So the Planned Parenthood have a woman called Karen Spruce, and I'm telling this because this is in the Washington Post. This is a Washington Post story a few weeks ago, or a few years ago, I should say. Karen Spruce is employed full-time by Planned Parenthood to work in Hollywood, influencing scripts for TV and movies. Yep. Um, and, and, and paid handsomely, by the way. And it's a full-time job. This is not, she's not doing this as a hobby. That's how seriously they take Hollywood. And many of your listeners, many of your listeners will know very well and will have had the shock of their lives recently, in the recent, you know, year, I would say, where they've turned on like their favorite hospital procedural. And Phelan and I are just big into the, into, procedurals you know when we're not right. when we're not working this is what we do we watch bad tv like the resident you know like um chicago med like all of these shows and any of your listeners will be nodding their head right now because they're going to know exactly what i'm about to say because they will have seen these pro-abortion stories dropped into these procedurals and these procedurals are watched by tens of millions of people yep. by huge huge populations um i just saw one recently and it was The Resident. And it was the final episode of the, it was a season finale of The Resident. So there was an awful lot of stuff going on, all very emotional about this story. And they shoehorned in, they shoehorned in an ep a storyline where a woman arrives with her husband. Her husband blessed himself. And I thought, oh God, here we go. Here yep. we go. Because that's never a good thing. Right. In, it's never a good thing. In the t any time you see somebody bless themselves in one of these TV shows, it's like a trigger letting you know, not good. Nothing good can come of that. Right. Right. Um, and then you discover his wife is pregnant. 
she has some kind of complication, some kind of heart, um, you know, heart issue based on the fact that she had COVID and something, something, something. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm saying to Phelan, like we're sitting there, we, we do this thing where we're, I'm talking always over the television and I'm saying, please tell me they're not going to do what I think they're going to do here. And he's, and he's like, they're not going to do the opposite, you know? And they basically, the doctor looks at the husband and says, you know, we can't save both of them. Your wife is going to die. She's going to die. She's going to die. And the baby, you know, that, that, so we have to take the, we have to abort the baby now. We have to abort the baby now. The husband says no. And he pray, and I've prayed about it. And I'm thinking, oh God, it's getting even worse. Right. He's super religious. So he's definitely not good. And so, no, no, I prayed about this. You can save both. And I think you know where this is going. Yeah. So everyone dies, right? right. <laughs> and then I went and looked online and I found an interview with the executive producer of The Resident talking about this actual thing where he was asked, um, oh, did you do this because of Roe? Did you do this because of the Dobbs decision coming across, uh, coming in front of the Supreme Court? No, 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 no. We had this plan for years. I'm thinking. Yeah, Right. Right. But then he went on to say, and you know, it's based on an actual story that happened in, in, in Texas. So again, I used that very unique tool only available to journalists called Googling <laughs> and discovered that there are actually two cases of a woman in that very particular situation based in Texas that, that made the news. One of which actually made Good Morning America. And it was on Good Morning America because the woman and the child both lived. Right. I've written a number of times to the resident now on Twitter and asked them, could they please provide me with the story that they were basing their TV show on? And I've spoken to a good friend, Omar Hamada, who you probably know, the famous doctor who tweeted out and said, basically, there is never a case, never, where a doctor has to make a choice between the, saving the life of the mother and the baby, that this never, that there's never an abortion necessary medically. Um, and I phoned him up. I, I kind of gave him a, a rundown of the story and he said, yeah, this is, this is not, this is obviously a very complicated situation. The case that I was talking about. And he said, no, there's no need for an abortion in that case. So this is what they do, you know? So yeah. what we're doing is just telling the truth. We're telling the truth about what happened in the Gosnell case. And, and by the way, and people, please, as I said, go to SerialKillerPod.com, go to SerialKillerPod.com and subscribe right now. But one of the other things that people will hear during our podcast, which I think is really unique, even in the serial, even in the true crime area, we do reenactments from the trial with actors right, um, right. because the, the, they didn't allow television cameras into the courtroom in, in Philadelphia and they didn't allow recording um, devices either, which is a real shame, by the way. But so what we did was because many, 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 I mean, you know, the truth is that the whole trial transcript itself, which runs obviously for weeks, um, all of it is extraordinarily dramatic and very, very, very compelling. Um, but we take out some pieces of that and we had actors reenact. And it's 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 amazing. And it's amazing to watch. It's amazing to listen. Um, and again, those pieces are in our podcast and you can hear them like the testimony of Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy Johnson was a janitor who worked at the clinic and he was the common the common law husband of Elizabeth Hampton, who was also working there. Elizabeth Hampton, by her own admission, is a chronic alcoholic and violent. Um, and she that's she worked there. She gave anesthesia to people. But Jimmy Johnson had the job of being the janitor and of clearing the toilets and was questioned on the stand under oath, under pain of perjury to tell what happened when he was doing that. And, there was, and he said, well, the, the toilets clogged up all the time. And they're like, why? Like, what? Like, what do you mean? He went with like, with like, with like 
bits with oh, parts. Geez. And they went, parts. And they said to him in the tribe, parts of what? And he said, like an arm, like arms and legs. Mm. You know, so people hear that. This was, and this again brings another point up, by the way, which is that there was testimony like that. This is not another century. And by the way, this is not a backwater in America. This is Philadelphia. Philadelphia. This is, Pennsylvania. Yeah. This is a very, very developed place on the planet Earth, by the way. And the idea that this testimony was being given in a trial of a man who is being accused of multiple homicides and that the whole media complex in the United States of America didn't descend immediately on the courthouse to cover this trial. Right. And by the way, everyone involved in the trial presumed that they would. And so they had actually reserved the biggest court room available. They had reserved that, set it aside because they expected that. And no one turned up because no one found out about it because the media didn't write about it, didn't report on it. And, you know, you'll, you know, people will maybe will look up online and they'll say, oh, no, I can see a story here from the New York Times. I see a story here about it from the USA Today. There is a thing called, and you know this very well, and Phelan knows this very well, you can cover a story and you can cover a story. Right. You, know, you can cut, right? So let's, let me give you an example. Trayvon Martin. Have you heard of Trayvon Martin? Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, right. Have you heard, you know, have you heard of, um, George, you know, George Floyd, right? Yep. Have you oh, heard yeah. of, of, you know, individual Michael Brown? Have you heard of Michael Brown, right? Yes. In yeah. each of those cases, individual, individual people dead. My, Michael Brown, a black teenager who was, who was shot by a police officer who was beating, trying to beat the police officer to death. It's one death. It's terrible, by the way, that he died. It's an awful, awful thing, an awful shame. But he, but he, you know, that's what's going to happen to you if you attack a police officer in his, in his, um, in his, in his cop car. Uh, everyone on the planet Earth has heard the name Michael Brown. How many people on the planet Earth have heard the name Samika Shaw? who is another African-American right. and who died, an innocent woman who died, you know, but yet we never hear about her and no one's putting a statue up to her. They're going to put a statue up to Michael Brown. And this is, you know, I remember, you know, this is a funny little story that I, if you have time, I can tell you. But sure. when, when I was promoting the book, um, uh, when we, we did, wrote the book about Gosnell, I was promoting the book and I went to Fox News and I was on Bill, the Bill O'Reilly show, which was a big, obviously huge deal. And I was very excited and all that. And I was in the green room and Juan, uh, Juan Williams was there. And, uh, you know, he, I was kind of all very nervous and everything. And I was with my publicist and he said, what are you here for? What, 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 what's your story? And, um, and, and, uh, and she, I think either she or I said, you know, well, so, you know, I've written a book about the Gosnell story. And he went, Oh, we know all about that. We all know all about that. Real dismissive, right? Yep. And I, I, my mother used to talk about the hand of God. And I swear, to, I swear to you, this is to me, this was the hand of God because it really annoyed me. I was really annoyed by the way he said that. And it really focused my mind and sort of centered me in a way that I needed <laughs> and in a way that I needed. And I just looked at him. I said to him, then tell me who Samika Shaw is. <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't know who that is. And I said, yeah. So you don't know about the Gosnell case because she was a young African-American mother who was butchered by him and died. Um, and, you know, a very young woman and a mother. She was a mother, by the way, as well. So, you know, and so, and, and, I, and I, you know, I don't want to throw Ron Williams under the bus, actually. But what it did for me was it really focused my mind, actually, on the, on this, on exactly a very important issue, you know, yeah. that, that about the media and about how the media covers stories. And I was really glad because then I went out onto Bill O'Reilly and, of course, I was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I brought, but I, but I kind of, it really did remind me, you know, of how 
you know, this is this is the way the media operate. And they, they covered the case. No, they didn't cover the case. And I know how they didn't cover the case because so many people still haven't heard of the Gosnell case. Right. And hopefully we're going to change all this with this podcast. You know, we want hundreds of millions of people to listen to this. And the great thing about podcasts, as you know, these, they have no borders. This is available around the whole world. It's yep. free. And without sounding awful, it is entertaining. It is entertaining but and, and fascinating in so many ways. Um, and, the, and as I said, the characters involved, you know, we have people like Christine Wexler, an assistant district attorney who try, who was involved in the investigation of the case. You know, we have Detective Jim Wood, who I just adore, who's my dear, dear friend, who he and I are like, we're like basically relate. You know, I said to him, you know, basically we're family now, whether you like it or not, Jim, you know, <laughs> and because we've been, in, you know, we just we've always kept in touch. Um over the years. And, you know, what an amazing police officer he was. You know, here's a guy who was working for the DA's office doing these undercover um, drug buys. You know, he was doing these undercover drug buys, which is in itself very, very, very fascinating. And we have the tapes of him, you know, undercover buying drugs off these drug dealers. And you can hear that and you can hear the drug dealer. That's part of the tape. You can hear the drug dealer that he speaks to one day. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of a funny story because the drug dealer he's dealing with is going to prison. And so he needs to get, you know, he needs to keep his supply going. So he says, do you know what you can do for me? You could just introduce me to the doctor. So if I get the doctor, um, I can deal with the doctor myself directly. Can you give me the name of the doctor? What's the name of the doctor where you're getting the scripts? And then she says, Gosnell. And he says, did you say Darnell? <laughs> and she says, Gosnell. And she says, G-O-S-N-E-L-L. Yep. And it's amazing. And you're thinking, bang. And then he finds out about Karnamaya Munger. And as Christine Wexler said, he became her champion. He was the only one. Right. Here's a woman in her 40s who'd come from, who had lived for 20 years in a refugee camp, in a, you know, in a mud hut, in a refugee camp, to come to America and have this extraordinary thing happen, have herself die like that, just a horrible, horrible death. And, and even her death is just terrible because, of course, she couldn't speak English. And uh, according to witnesses who were there at the time, they said, you know, Mrs. Monger, she put up a fuss. And I and at the time I remember writing this in the book, and I remember I've talked about this many, many times, and I've looked at the testimony, and I've seen this qu this quote from many of the witnesses who were there, uh, who were drugging her to death, by the way. And she put up a fuss, and they phoned Gosnell, and he said, "Med her up," and they knew what that meant. So to fill her up with Demerol, so that she basically was immobile. Right. Um, and I think that put her. She put up a fuss and I'm thinking the poor lady looked around this hellhole, this horrific place that she was in and thought, I'm going to die here. And she struggled to get away, to escape, um, and she didn't succeed. And I think it's important that she gets remembered, along with Samika Shaw and along with all these other children who died in this place, um, who were murdered in this place by Kermit Gosnell. And, and for people to... Yeah, to familiarize with them and to share this story with other people, because I think it's important. Um, and there's no more fitting a memorial to the, the life and death of baby boy. There's no more fitting memorial than that this story would be heard everywhere and that people would know um, what happened here and that he would be remembered. Exactly. You can find out more at SerialKillerPod.com, SerialKillerPod.com. And of course, I'll have a link when we do this in the show post. Anne McElhaney is the uh, is is the podcaster behind Serial Killer, a true crime podcast at Serial Killer Pod. And as it was great talking with you Thank again, you so can't much. wait to do this again. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Look forward to the next time. Bye, Ed. Bye bye. And folks, Bye. stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. I am very pleased to introduce one of my friends, Austin Roos, president of the Center for Family and Human Rights, c-fam.org, c-fam.org, and author of Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. Austin Roos joining us today to talk about what may happen in Dobbs, what the reaction is going to be, and what the future looks like for the pro-life community. Austin, you know, we do this an awful lot on um, Relevant Radio. I think we've done this on my podcast before, right? No, this is the first time. Oh, there! well, welcome to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. And I, Thank I can't, you so much. I can't believe I'm, I've been so derelict in um, actually inviting <laughs> you to do this because I love talking with you, Austin. You're... Uh, you're delightful and you're so well informed. Um, you know, we're, are, are you spending your, your, your decision, your Supreme Court decision days the way I am hanging out at scotusblog.com looking for, you know, doing the re refresh, looking for the R numbers, seeing when that Dobbs decision is going to drop? You're, you're like a cocaine rat, you know, pushing the button, pushing the button, pushing the button. That's a, it's <laughs> a perfect description. Push the yeah. button, push the button, push the yeah. button. Yeah, yeah that's refresh, me. Refresh, refresh. But I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm not a lawyer. Are you a lawyer, Ed? I am not a lawyer, but, uh, but I, I did stay at a Holiday Inn once. So I, I like to write about, I like to write about legal well, matters. You know, don't they release these on particular days or is this a special thing? I mean, I had thought that it was Mondays, uh, but I'd heard someplace that they were possibly releasing it on Friday of this week. But, yeah. But why why would you be a cocaine rat today? Oh, not today. We're recording right. this on Wednesday. And Wednesday is a day off. They usually will release decisions on Mondays and Thursdays. And so you know to gotcha. show up and, and, and I'll just give a shout out to scotusblog.com one more time because they do a really nice job of having a lot of very knowledgeable people on their, their live blog. And so you get an opportunity to really hear a lot of different viewpoints on the cases that are coming up. And some of these cases I really hadn't followed. So gives me some perspective as to, you know, how technical they are, how broad reaching they might be, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and they did add a day this week. They added Friday and it, that just happened yeah. today. They, they uh, announced this today that Friday will be a day that they will release decisions. This is an additional day. And there's only 13 decisions left to release. And they already had three days on the schedule. Um, Thursday, which would be the day that this podcast goes up. By, by the time this podcast goes up, well, I've already seen Thursday's um, Thursday's release. Friday, which is new, and now we've got Monday and Thursday next week as well. And Monday and th next week is the final week of the term. There have been years where they've extended decision days into the first week of July, but I think they've been working to get a lot of these things released. So that's what the deal is. And um, when you're a, when you're a cocaine when you're a Scotus cocaine rat like I am, you know you you pay attention to these things. My wife will not let me go downtown. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, when I was single, when I was younger and single, and I was young, I was not young, I was single for quite a long while. Um, I used to go to all the demonstrations. It's just like I just love going, you know, to any demonstration. You know, I, I would go to demonstrations on Lafayette Square for the Young Spartacist League. If you can imagine such a thing, hardcore commies. And I wish that in those days, you know, the, that Antifa existed here because those those are some quite astounding demonstrations. But I, I would be down there in a heartbeat if uh, Kathy let me, but she won't let me go down. Well, she's as as all of our wives are probably wiser than we are. Um, 
Because, I mean, it's it, it's going to be, I'm sure there's going to be some violence, regardless of how this yeah. thing turns out, right? We've already seen yeah. violence. I mean, there's been an yeah. assassination attempt against Brett Kavanaugh. There's been, um, you know, Jane's Revenge, which is a uh, domestic terrorist group, is has already firebombed some pro-life um, advocacy Lots centers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and promising to do more of that. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, I understand why she'd be reluctant to have you go down there. Uh, and and experience it firsthand, uh, you know. I, I guess I, I'll ask you first. I, I'm sure you've read through the the uh, the draft from Alito on Dobbs, yeah. and yeah. and and I found it to be a remarkably compelling legal document. Really, not a whole lot of ideology in there. Just saying that the Constitution never addresses this issue, never addresses health care in in any way, and so and, and that the vast uh, tradition in English and American uh, law was to criminalize abortion, and yeah. so there's no there's no reason why the Supreme Court should be involved in this. It should be it should go to the legislatures. They're not going to outlaw abortion. They're just going to return the issue to the legislatures, presumably the state legislatures. Um, I thought it was very well reasoned. I thought it was um, it pretty much said everything that even both sides have sort of conceded about the original road decision, which was that it was a yep. legal anomaly and not very well um, considered. On the other hand, I mean, I certainly understand why it's getting the reaction it is, is because there's been a lot of people who've been hoping that this will never go to legislatures and that the Supreme court would just end up being the perpetual legislative arbiter on, on abortion um, restrictions. Hopefully none at all, right? I mean, the other side really doesn't want any at all. Um, so I'm sure you're not surprised by the violence that's that's erupted in here. But do you think that it's mostly over at this point, that most people have just accepted that this is what's going to happen? Uh, a couple of things. Um, no, I don't think the violence violence is over at all. I think I think that when it comes down and it goes our way, and we hope that it does, uh, and I agree with you, the, the Alito draft, was exceptional. You know, it could have been written by Ed Whalen, you know, our, our, our friend Ed Whalen. Right. And you know what? Maybe it was. Uh, you know, it, it was like all of the arguments that, that we have made, you know, for several decades. Uh, so it was, it was a remarkable document, uh, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's. Uh, it, it really was amazing. To the question of violence, no, I don't think that the, we, we ain't seen nothing yet. Um, you know, I, I think that there's going to be an uptick in 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 the bombing of uh, crisis pregnancy centers. I think more churches are going to be attacked. I think cars are going to burn. I yeah. think cars are going to burn in Washington D.C. And and you know, we we live in a dual system of justice these days. You know, nobody's going to get arrested. Nobody's going to go to jail. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I I you know, in many ways, my wife is is kind of wise in insisting that I not go downtown. Uh, I, I remember uh, during the Trump administration, uh, Kathy and um, our, our, took my daughters down to an event at the White House, and they were only able to get within a couple of blocks of the White House because Antifa was everywhere, you know, uh, and it was it was downright scary. And finally, they turned around and came back. But I, I think that they're, they're, this is going to happen uh, actually all over the country. Um, by the way, I think that the name Jane's Jane's Revenge is that the name? The yeah, group? Jane's Revenge. Yeah, that's the name that they is a themselves. very clever name, wouldn't you say? Jane's Revenge. Holy cow! I mean, but the funny thing is, is is that is that uh, is that uh, Jane Jane uh, was actually ended up on our side. 
Uh, so in, in some ways, it's kind of an ironic name. But I think we're heading into a very long, hot summer, as they used to say back in the 60s, when people really cared about law and order. Well, I agree with you. And I think that there's more reason for that than just this uh, decision. I think that there's, yeah. I think we're just having a lot of crime issues at the moment. It kind of reminds me of the seventies a little bit, to be honest yeah. with you. And I was, yeah. I was, I was a younger lad back in those days, but I do remember the, I do remember some of the turmoil of the 1970s. And, uh, what I'm, year were you born? Ed? I was born in 1963. And so, year. so yeah, yeah. We, were, we have some of the same memories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was I grew up in in Los Angeles, you know, Symbionese Liberation Army stuff was going on at that time. Oh, you had all, all that stuff was going on, you know. So it's it's I don't think it's still quite as bad as it was back in the early to mid nineteen seventies. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think it's as I, I think it's much worse than it used to be. And I, I just moved to Texas a year ago, uh, Austin, and um, you know, I was in the Twin Cities. I lived in the Twin Cities when all the rioting was going on up there uh, really? a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I, I didn't live in the cities. I lived in the suburbs, yeah. but, you know, close enough to where it reminded me of Los Angeles in 1992 and and all this type of stuff. I've been around some of this stuff and um, it doesn't end well. And in Washington, D.C., of course, the 2017 inauguration, you had all the rights that w yeah. were going yeah. on there. And I think you're right. We have a dual system of justice here because this is these these violent protests are going to be covered probably pretty similarly as those earlier violent protests, which is to say that they are mostly peaceful demonstrations. They're mostly peaceful demonstrations when they're anything but. Um, and I agree with you. I think we're going to see more of that over the summertime. However, you know, the, the, the yeah. other dangerous thing, there was there was uh, some footage, uh, I think, from last weekend that there was a woman, I think, in Michigan who got naked in a Catholic mass and stood up and started shouting. Now, um, the natural impulse among the men there would be to drag her sorry keister out and toss her into the street. But these days, with iPhones and lawsuits and Soros prosecutors, that's a very dangerous proposition. Uh, I, I know in this particular case in Michigan, the women stepped forward and dragged her sorry keister out, which I think is probably safer. But we're in a situation where a regular person who steps up and defends the innocent very well could find themselves in the dock uh, of, a, of a Soros prosecutor. Yep. I think you're right about that. And although I think that the days are numbered for Soros prosecutors as well. But we're getting... I, I, I hope you're I, right. I, I mean, we could we could do this for two hours, actually, but uh, <laughs> I want to get back. I want to get back to abortion. And where do you think we go after... It, let's say... And I think it's... The most likely outcome right now is a 5-4 or 6-3 decision that upholds the, the the law at issue in Dobbs and explicitly throws out um, Roe, Casey, Doe. People don't talk about Doe, but Doe is just as important to throw out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you, throw out, Roe, yeah, if you throw out Roe, you throw out all of it, right? Um, yeah. I don't think there's a way to come to a compromise. And frankly, I think after all the violence, the Supreme Court justices are probably going to look at that and go, we just really need to rip the Band-Aid off at this point and uh, get it over with and send it back to the legislature so that those nutcases don't come back here year after year. And if that's the case, where do you think abortion goes in the United States? Where do you, th where do you think it's going to, where do you think it's going to, what direction is it going to take? And what is the pro-life mission after Roe gets overturned? The, um, you know, the big abortion states, uh, California, New York, Illinois, 
are going to stay, you know, with uh, uh, radical abortion laws and they're going to be pumping out abortions. They're probably going to increase dramatically because people are going to be there's, there's going to be airlifts of women that are going to be very covered by the mainstream media coming in to get abortions because some states will outlaw it altogether. And I think many will. I, I think others will end up with European style gestational limits, which is like 14 weeks or 15 weeks or something like that. And quite frankly, that is my ultimate fear. When you look at uh, polling, uh, the settlement seems to be among the broad swath of the middle yep. is gestational limits. And that is my worry is, is that um, in most of the states, it's going to be gestational limits of 14 or 15 weeks. And sadly, that's when most abortions occur is prior to that moment. Um, so we may end up with, with a little bit of a stalemate. The good news is that the pro-life movement has been active on the ground. I think we talked about this on Drew Mariani's show a couple of weeks ago, is that the pro-life movement has been active on the ground now, you know, for 43 years because this great big boulder was in the way called Roe v. Wade. And so it forced pro-lifers to get really creative um, and, and uh, you know, make sure that abortion clinics uh, had uh, similar procedures as uh, as uh, uh, surgical centers, and that abortion doctors had visiting privileges at hospitals and things like that. I mean, just very creative stuff. Um, so we are ahead of the other side on the ground because they've been able to sit back fat and happy and, because of Roe v. Wade. Um, quite frankly, I think everybody is surprised that Roe will have fallen so rapidly after you know Gorsuch uh, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Kavanaugh came onto the court, I'm I'm surprised myself. But I think it's, they're going to duke it out in, in 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 the states. Some states will have it you know completely illegal. But like I said, my fear is a European style settlement of 14, 15 weeks. Well, I mean, I think I agree with you on that, and certainly that's not my position. But if, yeah. and again, I mean, I've been saying this all along is that when you get this back into the state legislatures, you're probably going to have a few states on, on either side of this, right? Where it's almost entirely yeah. verboten and other states where it's up to the moment of birth, right? Which is where Democrats were trying to press this thing on a na nationwide basis in a bill that was about the most, uh, about the best example of uh, performative overreach that you could possibly get. That was the bill that they tried to introduce after the Alito draft leaked. Um, and I think that what you're going to find here and what the, what the political parties are going to find is that neither political party really represents a large swath of the voters on this issue. Now, I wish that, I, I wish that a large swath of the voters were entirely pro-life, but they're just simply not. And I yeah. think you're right. I think I think that at least not at the moment. And and that's the reason why you and I and I know you and I were discussing this in the Drew Mariani show. And and um and by the way, everybody should be listening to the Drew Mariani show whenever you get a chance because it's an awesome show and Drew is a terrific guy. Um, relevantradio.com is where you can find that. Um, and I, I know that we've talked about how how this is going to end up at least probably in the first couple of years. And so I think it becomes a, I think it really does become a hearts and minds issue. And, and this is a newer development. I, did you read the, um, article in the Washington Post this week? I think it was this week, maybe in late last week about the, about the young woman who was, uh, pregnant and who went to an abortion clinic, but it was within 48 hours of, um, or wanted to get an abortion, but it was within 48 hours of Texas's law taking effect. 
Uh, this was last September, I guess it was, and ended up at a crisis, a pro-life pre- a crisis pregnancy uh, clinic instead and decided to keep the babies. It was an interesting article. And I, I you know, both sides are sort of claiming, ah, this, see, this is exactly what we're talking about. I'd say it's a very nuanced article. I'm not sure that you've read this. She ended up having twins and she's no. kind of doting on the twins. It's It's really an interesting story. And I think the Washington Post actually doesn't do a bad job of balancing out the tension here, which is one is that she's an 18-year-old girl with a boyfriend who is making not a whole lot of money, um, who's involved in the, in the children's lives and still they're still a couple, um, but they're struggling, obviously, and she's had to drop out of real estate school and all this. So they cover all this. But at the same time, they also are covering the fact that she's talking about, I can't imagine what my life would be without these two children with me. And it's really, it's really reoriented me, uh, you know, my entire outlook sort of thing. This is not, this is not a story with easy answers. And I think that's where the pro-life movement, well, first off, it's where they've been, right? Because they operate these crisis pregnancy centers. They operate uh, support systems for young women who choose life. But I think that's really where the entire battle then has to shift, right? Which is to, which is to say, um, we're, we're about more than just stopping the abortion. We're, we're also about promoting the life. Well, you know, and that's one of the ways that the pro-life movement has been incredibly creative over the years yep. is opening up hundreds and hundreds of what used to be called crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, the name has been changed. Uh, pregnancy care centers, I think, is, is what they prefer to be called these okay. days um, um, because they want to take away the word crisis. But, but yeah, hundreds of them at the same time being very creative legislatively, with the result of which is closing down of abortion clinics. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who run crisis pregnancy centers and they're doing amazing work. But back to my worry, you know, I, I spend a fair amount of time working on international issues because that's what CPAM does. And I spend a fair amount of time in, in Europe. And the, the pro-life movement in Europe is, you know, kind of moribund. And one of the reasons is because the decisions have been made democratically through national legislatures. Right. And and so therefore, um, there is this settlement. And and that is one of the things that I'm that I'm worried about. Now, having said that, I will also say this. Pro-lifers are fired up for the unborn child. And this has been inculcated now through several generations. So I, I think that the pro-lifers are just not 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 we are not going to give up. And as, as a matter of fact, the pro-lifers are not going to give up with regard to the law. You know, I don't know if you've ever spoken to, uh, oh gosh, what's his first name? His last name is Craddock. Totally excellent guy who has been, you, you, has been pushing this idea of, the, you know, and Robbie George is doing it too, the 14th Amendment, uh, personhood for the unborn child. Right. They are going to push these cases in, in, in the courts and, and hopefully bring it all the way to the Supreme Court to encourage, and, and people will be pushing this in Congress as well to recognize the unborn child as a part of the 14th Amendment uh, and, 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 and push the idea that the, this naturally was the intent all along, um, that all persons would be included. So, I mean, the, 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 the pro-lifers are very creative. We have been all along. The pro-life movement, I like to say, is broad and deep and vast. I mean, today we get we do a tip of the hat to the legal and uh, the, the, the much maligned legal and political arm of the pro-life movement. Um, but going forward, 
you know, uh, the crisis pregnancy centers are going to be incredibly important. But but the political and legend, the political and legal arm of the pro-life movement is not going to give up. Josh right. Craddock. Josh Craddock. You should have Josh Craddock on. He's a uh, remarkable young man with several children. Uh, uh, went to the Harvard Law School, evangelical. Um, uh, uh, I think right now he's working for a federal judge, but he's a prolific writer on this particular topic. Josh Craddock. Well, I'll make sure that we uh, that we try to get him on here. Let's talk a little bit about the international pressure. You, I mean, you mentioned sure. the the settlement in Europe. You know, CFAM uh, Center for Family and Human Rights. Uh, that's C fam.org c-fam.org folks uh, and you should be checking that out uh, because there's a lot of great information over there and austin is doing a fantastic job with that organization uh, the un is starting to put a lot of pressure on i mean i think the un is is really stepped it up in the last few weeks right uh the un human rights chief bashes the u.s on abortion that's one of the articles at, uh, at, uh, at there the eu parliament is attacking the u.s supreme court i mean i think that's interesting too that you have the UN, these UN organizations, um, uh, the European Union, by the way, is backing a UN resolution to make abortion a human right. I should add that in there as well. Yeah. But I mean, the, the first two stories have political organizations in Europe attacking the American judiciary over a legal point, which I think also, by the way, also strengthens Alito's argument in the in the, in the draft Dobbs uh, opinion uh, that um, it's really that this whole abortion issue has really um, perverted the the yeah. role of the judiciary in, yeah. in in the United States. But so does this. I mean, this is I mean, this is international pressure on judges here that I think. Underscores Alita's point, but I, I mean, more to what what's going to come in the future is that we're going to see a lot more of this, and especially yeah. coming out of Europe. There was a time um, in previous courts, particularly when Kennedy was around, that uh, Justice Kennedy would spend his summers going to legal seminars in Europe, uh, talking about the, the preeminence of, of, quote, international law. Um, uh the Supreme Court, under pre previous courts, have cited uh, documents that the United States has never ratified. This this has been a, this is one of the reasons that CFAM is in existence is to make a make arguments about the proper understanding of international law, okay, and what international law really says. Um, and and abortion is not a part of international law. Abortion has never been mentioned in a hard law treaty. Abortion has never been mentioned in in, in a non binding resolution. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that we're here to make sure that that stays like that, but also so that other people know that this is happening. But the Supreme Court has not been shy in years past from citing documents that the United States has never ratified. When the Supreme Court overturned the so-called juvenile death penalty, uh, not that they're putting kids to death, but they're putting people to death who committed crimes under the age of majority. Uh, when they overturned the juvenile death penalty, the Supreme Court cited the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The United States has never ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Right. They cited a part of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which we have ratified. But the part that they cited was a part of that treaty, which we rejected upon ratification. So the Supreme Court under previous courts has been quite comfortable in citing international law that we're, that isn't even international law. Um, when, uh, the Dobbs case came forward, uh, for the very first time, I think in history, uh, a body of international human rights experts 
uh, submitted an amicus brief saying that abortion is the law of the world. This is false. Uh, our brief countered that. Um, uh, and and I, 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 I thank goodness that Alito didn't even address the question of international law. Right. But I guarantee you this. If it is overturned, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, international law will be cited in the dissent. Oh, absolutely. 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 And and, and frankly, I think that at some point you're going to see Joe Biden try to get some sort of international treaty that will um, that may even, you know, try to fold that in. Hopefully the Senate Republicans are watching that carefully because, of course, treaties require two thirds of the Senate to ratify. But um, but I I mean, let me just point out that one of the great things about the United States of America is precisely that it takes so much to ratify a treaty. The United States, even under Democratic presidents, even under Democratic senates, have have not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The Convention on Persons with Disabilities was not ratified. The Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women has never been ratified. So uh, we are very careful when it comes to this, and mostly because the the very high threshold for for uh, for acceding to these treaties. Right. And I think it still bears a lot of scrutiny and vigilance <laughs> for the next couple of years while uh, Biden's office. That's that's yeah. exactly why the Center for Family and Human <laughs> Rights exists, c-fam.org. You know, Austin, um, uh, first off, I think that you and, and a lot of people in the pro-life movement deserve a lot of congratulations for the hard work that's gone in over the last 50 years to get to the point where we have a Supreme Court now that's actually willing to go back and take a look at the jurisprudence that brought us to this. Yeah. Um, but just to get back to what we were saying earlier, Austin, you, the work is really now just beginning. Uh, even yeah. if even if you even if this gets overturned, the work now spreads out to 50 legislatures. It stays in Congress. You have to be vigilant there. You know, what can people do to, to first off to help out uh, the Center for Family and Human Rights, your organization, c-fam.org? And what should they do in in terms of just more generally working to um, to advance the protection of the unborn? You know, um, it, it is a remarkable movement. Um, as I said earlier, and I say all the time, it's broad and deep and vast. There's something for everybody. You know, the 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 the, the Catholic New Left um, basically took a took a took a pass on this some years ago and walked away from the pro-life movement um, because they didn't like the coziness with the Republican Party. But even for them, there were things that they could do. For instance, if I was an anti-corporate leftist, I would go after insurance companies that cover abortion. You know, it's it's like pro-lifers have been so creative. Lila Rose sat in her dorm room at UCLA and, and cooked up phony phone calls. You know, it's like there's something for everybody in this movement. But but the Catholic new left walked away because, like I said, the coziness with with the Republican Party, they could try to rejuvenate the uh, the, the, the pro-life caucus and the Democrat Party. Um, so my advice to people is to send money to their favorite pro-life group in their st- that works in their state legislature, because it's 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 going to move into the state legislatures. Uh, send 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 a check to a national pro-life group that you like, um, you know, direct mail is the mother's milk of the pro-life movement and therefore the mother's milk of the international pro-life movement because we are the we're, we're sort of the, the inspiration of the world in terms of the pro-life 
issue. But we would be dead in the water without checks for $25 here and $30 there. Um, and, you know, and it's the widow's might and we get by and look what we've done. Look what we've done. It's amazing with teeny tiny budgets, but a lot of heart and a lot of creativity. So I would urge people to, you know, it's not too late to get involved in the pro-life movement. Do it today. Start something interesting. Give be money. Be creative. Give money. Uh, do some volunteer work. at. I know it's yeah. not supposed to say a crisis pregnancy center, but a pregnancy support center. Um, yeah. You know, um, Help support a young woman who's going through a difficult choice. Um, those are these are all steps. Um, Stand outside an abortion clinic with people who pray every Saturday. You know, I guarantee right. you, if there's a if there's an abortion clinic near where you live, there are people standing outside there Saturday mornings saying the rosary or other prayers, and go do that. It's it's amazing. And if you have the courage, go and talk to the women who are going in. You know, there's a lot of saves that go on yep. and lives that are changed. Um, work with, uh, work with post-abortive women. There's some amazing work with post-abortive women. One of the most important voices in the pro-life movement these last 25 years have been post-abortive women who stand in the public square and tell their stories. Man, there's so much that people can do. Let's talk a little bit about you. Let's talk a little bit about your books. Um, the, I, I believe your latest book is Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. You've also yep. written, uh, Fake Science Exposing the Left's Skewed Statistics. Say that five times fast. Skewed statistics, fuzzy facts, and dodgy data. That's from our that's from our sister organization, Regnery. It's part of the Salem family, as is hot air. And yeah. um and uh, Little is Suffering Souls, Children Whose Short Lives Point Us to Christ. That's from 10 books. And you're working on something new, right? Well, you know, I was working on a biography of Cardinal Burke, but it became too big and too immense for me to do. So I've, I've kind of put it aside, and I'm figuring out what I want to do next. And so I'm talking to my friends at TAN and also Sophia uh, to figure out what I might want to do next. But I, I don't have a book deal as we speak. Well, But I'll tell you what, I, I, I would highly recommend my favorite book that I've written was the first one, which is uh, Little of Suffering Souls, uh, Children Whose Short Lives Point Us to Christ. Uh, in there, I, I tell the story of three children, two from Northern Virginia, one from Paris, who suffered greatly, died young, and brought many people to the faith. One of them is Leonard Leo's daughter. And you must know Leonard Leo. Yes, I well. do. Yes. And it's his daughter, Margaret. And I tell her story. I also tell the story of Brendan Kelly, a little boy uh, with Down syndrome who lived, gosh, three miles from me uh, with an amazing family. Um, and uh, he eventually died of leukemia. Um, you know, yeah. uh, Senator Rick Santorum and his wife, Karen, credit Brendan's prayers with saving Bella's life, their, their daughter with trisomy 23. Yep. Uh, when he was getting his bone marrow transplant, he was offering his suffering verbally for Bella, who had just been born. So the, these stories are truly remarkable. And, and, and they really are stories of our time because they show that there's no life that's not worth living. Well, Austin Roos, on that, um, on that note, again, that's um, Little, Little Suffering Souls, Children Whose Short Lives Point Us to Christ, 10 Books 2017. Should be able to find that on Amazon and, and other fine places where you can buy books. Austin Roos, c-fam.org is where, where his uh, website's at. Be sure to bookmark that. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much. Anytime. All right. Stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you liked what you saw, 
be sure to subscribe at each of the different platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube, and we're at the Town Hall Media Player. So be sure to subscribe. Subscriptions are important. Really do appreciate that. It's free. Uh, be sure to like the video if you like that as well. We want to get the word out as much as we possibly can. Really want to thank you for being with us. And while you're at it, if you're at any one of the Town Hall websites, especially hotair.com, be sure to subscribe to our VIP program or our VP, VIP Gold program, which has uh, extra benefits for our subscribers. That is a paid subscription service, but that money goes to fund important uh, initiatives such as Julio Rosas's On the Road Journalism, First Person Journalism, Journalism You Can Trust from the Border, from the Unrest in Cities, and all other sorts of things. We do all sorts of fun things with our VIP Gold uh, subscription members, including our VIP Gold Chat that I do with Cam Edwards on Wednesday afternoons. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Each of our sites have their own live chat editions and their own uh, streaming shows for VIP Gold members. So be sure to subscribe to the Hot Air uh, VIP, VIP Gold, which goes across the entire Town Hall media spectrum, and especially to the Ed Morrissey Show podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.